Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Freedom Talks. This is Brady with you today. Uh, today, I have the pleasure of having Matt Seafeld on. He is the Executive Vice President for MedEvolve. Uh, he is responsible for all RCM operations, data science, and workflow automation solutions and business development. He brings over 20 years of management consulting experience in, health, in the healthcare industry with extensive expertise in process improvement programs and technology across the entire revenue cycle. Matt, how are you doing today? Doing good, Brady. Well, thanks for having me on. Yeah, no problem. I was uh, I was glad and thoroughly impressed by uh, your resume and your story and um, kind of all the stuff that you have out there and um, kind of how uh, inspirational you've been in terms of uh, creating businesses that are both helping people and helping um, physicians uh, collect and, and run their businesses successfully and survive in this crazy healthcare landscape that's that we kind of live in. So um, I guess like right off the bat, let's kind of get your background and where you came from and what led you to uh, your position at MedEvolve and the creation of that company. Yeah, so uh, I was actually talking on a, another show the other day and they asked like how I got into healthcare. And I said, well, I was a senior in college walking on a library walk at a job fair and I happened to see some consulting firms and one of them was a healthcare consulting firm. <laughs> so I walked right up to him and I said, I have no experience in healthcare. I mean, I've gone to doctors. What's this all about? He goes, yeah, you don't need experience. Just come on board. So I started my career in management consulting and I started it with the company Stockham Associates, which at the time uh, and really still is renowned for revenue cycle management, workflow automation, technology analytics, and then how they put that into their consulting practice. And that's that ethos is what's carried me through my entire career. Um, what's funny is when you're 23, 24 year old flying all over the country, having conversations with, with, I call them, you know, the, the gray hair executives and the physicians and saying, Hey, here's what you need to be doing. And they're looking at me going, dude, what are you 24? What experience? Yeah. <laughs> what do you know about this? <laughs> so, but I did, you know, and I, 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 I really enjoyed healthcare. Uh, I, I moved on to Pricewaterhouse and then Deloitte after that. And then I actually started my first company, which was Interpoint. And it was really a workflow automation and an analytics company that uh, really sat on top of the finance systems for large health systems and, and large ambulatory practices around the U.S. And, and I spent about six years building that. And then I got acquired by a company out of Atlanta, um, took some time off to figure out what I wanted to do. And then I had a, actually a good friend of mine uh, was already working at MetaVolve and said, hey, would you come on board and help us do some consulting within our services department? They have a half our revenue as revenue cycle services. So we build for a lot of practices nationwide. Uh, and they're also a finance system, a, a practice management system. So I came on board uh, first as a consultant and I liked what I saw, but I saw a lot of opportunity to innovate, do a lot of things that I had done at Interpoint, do it for this small company out of Arkansas. And that's what we've done. So I came on full-time in January of 17, uh, started just by running business development, sales marketing, and then have expanded my role there. Um, it's, it's been uh, really exciting to see where the company has gone because of the things that we're doing with workflow, with artificial intelligence, with analytics and transparency, you know, and it's really predicated on helping physician groups, uh, or really it could be hospitals, physician groups, any, any, anyone delivering care in this, in this country, uh, save money, right? Reduce labor dependence, right? Automate manual things, uh, generate better revenue, generate better margin, all things that now with COVID, you can't afford not to have that stuff. I mean, you just can't, you know, yeah. I, I talk with folks all the time now and they're like, oh, my volumes disappeared. 
patients are rescheduling appointments, my revenue's down. It's like, well, look, all those things are true. You can't be writing off account receivable. You can't write off a dollar in revenue because of something you did wrong. So you got to really maximize it. And unfortunately, you know, legacy PM systems don't focus on that. You know, they focus on basic reporting and basic analytics and basic work drivers. We've had to go above that because we had to save our revenue cycle services business. And that's, that's the key that I tell everybody is we built this cool technology the last couple of years to save our services business. And it did. And it worked so well, we started selling it to our largest non-service clients. And it worked so well for them, we started to get on stage at conferences and started to really build a, uh, an ethos around what we're doing here at Metabolf. Um, but it all started with StockCamp back in 2000 when I happened to take a job offer. It was between Arthur Anderson and StockCamp. And I'm glad I went with StockCamp because Arthur Anderson was gone two years later <laughs> due to the scandals with Enron and, and, and all that. What, so the thing that's a little bit, uh, I don't know, interesting to me is like, what what was it that clicked in the healthcare industry for you? And like, what what did kind of just made sense to you in your mind? Like, was it, did it have to do with the healthcare industry that, um, made you so good at what you did almost right off the bat or um, would you have been able to jump into anything else and be just as good or efficient um, at, at what you were doing for the healthcare industry? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that so related to healthcare, what, what just continued and it still continues to boggle my mind 20 years later is how this is an industry that thinks it's okay to deliver services, but not get paid consistently for those services. Right. And, and, and it's it's really, really hard to see it in the medical, the surgical specialty space, which is where Metabolf plays, because you see these are surgeons doing elective procedures and you still have all of this bad debt being written off every year. They're not collecting from patients. They're not holding patients accountable. They have all these avoidable write offs going to, uh, because of mistakes made on the front end of the revenue cycle. So I've always been steadfast on the financial side of the business. You know, I've really I did a little bit of clinical uh, in terms of throughput management, patient, uh, we call it patient progression, but getting people in and out of hospitals, more beds, more efficiently, freeing up capacity with the ORs and all that. But outside of that stint that I did early in my career, I focused primarily on, you know, the basic financials, you know, improving the profit and loss statement, improving the balance sheet and improving, uh, improving uh, the need for labor uh, or, well, labor dependence, you know, reducing labor dependence. Yeah, I think from a consulting standpoint, you know, the fundamentals you learn around how to assess a problem, how to design a solution, how do you how do you measure the effectiveness of that design to get the outcome? I think those apply to any vertical, you know, yeah. um, early in my career, I was frustrated with healthcare, and I thought about maybe I should go back to a big four consulting firm. I ended up at Pricewaterhouse and then at Deloitte. Um, but by then I was so into my healthcare side. It, to move to banking or, or any, any other industry, automotive energy would have been uh, inefficient for me at, uh, at the time. Um, I look for things in my life that are being done, but do being done very inefficiently. And that's what's drive my entrepreneurs. And that's why I started um, Interpoint. I uh, was tired of spending thousands of hours in pivot tables and having to do manual reporting and manual this and that when I said, there's gotta be a better way. And so, so that's what I did. And I know later on, we'll talk about my life link, but the same thing, even in addiction and recovery, it's an industry that just keeps getting it wrong, you know, and you got a 95% greater relapse rate in the first year. Like what is up with that? You know, isn't there a better way for us to do, do recovery, you know, and, and, and get better results. So that's kind of the way I've driven my, my ventures is, it's being done. It's just not being done effectively. And then where does technology play? Yeah. You know? 
20 years ago, you and I are sitting on blackberries and palm pilots. Now it's like, <laughs> I, I just order my Starbucks online and you know, Amazon guy shows up twice a day. And I mean, I don't have to leave my house. Yeah. Yeah, Grubhub. Uh, so, so if the world's moving in that direction, why isn't healthcare moving in that direction? You know, quicker. Yeah. T uh, one of my previous guests uh, said he, he firmly believes that 95% of all businesses in the U.S. are uh, created on the basis of surely we can do better than this, um, which it sounds kind of exactly what you Yep. What you think? <laughs> yeah, people think you have to get the new idea, and yep. it's not. You know, the most successful businesses are are the ones that that see a market that's that's just not being efficient, and they can solve for that. And then you know, and then of course you have to build. You know, the whole built to last. One of my favorite books concept is that you can't sit uh, sit idle though, and that's a prime example of Metavolve. So Metavolve sat idle for years, right? They they really believed they were only a practice management company with RCM services. And they didn't think beyond that. So their business was literally declining year over year. Um, and the RevCycle business was, was, was massively declining in 2018. So what we had to do is we had to reinvent ourselves. And we did it through developing technology that automates workflow and, and transparency solutions that tell you a story on your financial health in seconds, no longer days, weeks, or months. And that's been enough to put life back into this business and now starting to get us into much larger, larger deals. So, so you know, it's important to, to continue to innovate, um, understand the market, understand what you're good at, and what you're not. When do you need to uh, develop something on your own or maybe look for somebody else to develop it? So there's, there's those fundamentals, too. But keep reinventing yourself. It's kind of like personally, too. Right. We, we have to keep reinventing ourselves. We can't just say, well, that was good. I just turned 44 on Saturday. I said, well, that was good. <laughs> It's like, well, no, what am I going to do this year that I didn't do last year or that I maybe wanted to do last year? So, I mean, so from what I understand, um, the heart of kind of the innovation that Metavolve has had and why it's been so appealing and both been so successful in the last few years is uh, the artificial intelligence and the technology that you guys have been able to create. Um, could you kind of walk me through the process of um how you guys came up with that, how involved were you with creating that tech? Um, and then um, how does that, what, is, what, is, what are the benefits to using that technology and um, kind of how does that benefit uh, physician groups? Yeah, yeah, AI, I mean, it's a funny word because it's overused now, right? And it's, yeah. it's a misunderstood. People have all different definitions of what it means. You know, for Metavolve, the approach is, is, do I need to look at this claim today? Is there something that I can do today that is going to move my chances of reimbursement in a positive direction, right? And if there isn't, then why am I wasting people looking at it? And that's the sad part. I'll give you an example. About 80 to 90% of, of claims on open account receivable don't need to be looked at today. Tomorrow, they might have to be, but not today. But yet we look at them. So we end up with all of these FTEs, this huge labor spend working ineffectively. And so we start to profile these claims. We start to get into the science behind, okay, should I look at this? Should I not? And there's lots of algorithms that obviously go into that, but that's a big component. So if you're a physician group, whether you're a physical therapist or you're an orthopedic surgeon or urology or whatever, a hospital system, right? Is that if you've got a lot of people that are managing the back end of the revenue cycle, don't over hire to follow up on things that know to be looked at, right? And, and you, know, you can apply these principles across the entire revenue cycle. And we're starting to do a lot on the front end. We call it financial clearance. But are you doing everything you're supposed to do with Brady's appointment before Brady shows up? And if you do those things right, 
your financial outcome is a lot going to be a lot better. And if you do them wrong, you're going to continue to have avoidable write-offs and bad debt and et cetera. So, so it's, it's part of those principles. Um, and, you know, physician groups that are using and are embracing this, they're seeing these ridiculous return on investment because they're like, I mean, I've got a client in Northeast, a big urology group. She thought she had to hire 15 people to manage her AR. Turns out once we deployed our workflow system, she had four. She's down <laughs> to three. So for her, she didn't have to hire, you know, 10 bodies, put them on benefits, you know, and all that. She just didn't hire them. So, you know, that, and I've got tons of examples there, but that's really where the AI plays. And now the other side of that too, is getting into predictability, you know? So for example, we have algorithms now that look at, at how much the value of your receivable is. So if you put a charge in today, what's the value of that charge? If you get paid what you're supposed to be paid and more importantly, when are you going to get paid? Right. Because with COVID now is all about, you know, every two weeks, you're like, man, am I going to have cash coming in or not? I mean, second half of March, April and May were, were dire straits for any practice. Thank mm -hmm. gosh for the PPP loans. Right. Yep. Accelerated payments for Medicare. Uh, these, a lot of these clients would have been out of business. If it hadn't been those things. And so now it's like they need to know that, hey, this is my revenue that I've generated this month. Uh, this is when it's going to pay. And if it's not paying, by the way, in a particular time frame, I need to know with some decent understanding why. What is it about the profile of this claim that's falling outside of the, I call them the outliers. So, you know, that's our, you know, the other piece, and I'm just giving you practical examples here, examples here is around exhausted claims. You know, I asked people in the sales process, I said, do you know how many claims are on your open account receivable? And they go, yeah, I think so. I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> you should know that, right? I said, do you know how many claims have not been touched by your collectors? They're like, well, we don't know that. So I said, for the ones that have been touched by your collectors, when's the last time it was touched? And then the last question I ask is, how many claims on your open AR have been touched more than say five times by a collector with no outcome, no financial outcome? Exhausted claim. Yeah, they're like, well, I have no idea. I'm like, well, you can know that in seconds now with what we've done. And again, we had to do that because I got to manage 75 plus people, you know, who are virtual now, you know, yeah. work in revenue cycle. So again, it's, it's, I, I, I try to tell people to imagine a world where those types of questions are answered in real time. The peace of mind you as an administrator or you as a physician uh, will have by just knowing the situation. It may be a bad situation, but at least you know it and you can plan from it. Healthcare for the 20 years I've been in it loves to live in the blinders. You know, they can smell the smoke, but nobody knows where the smoke's coming from. They think they do. So what we do is like, hey, our software is designed to let you step back 30 yards and actually see where the plumes are. And then you can navigate your way through those plumes and you can, you know, or, or put out the fire. And that's, that's really important with it. Um, you know, we're, we're seeing a ton of focus on patient engagement right now. We see a ton of focus on the clinical utility of the electronic health record. All of those things are really important. Guess who gets left behind? Revenue cycle. The revenue cycle teams are the ones that keep getting left behind on new innovative things that, you know, and that's what we're trying to solve for is let me solve for the revenue cycle because you can have the best patient engagement. You yeah. can have the best experience and the best uh, clinical outcome, but you may not get paid. And that's yeah. not that a shame. So uh, one of the things that I think I had heard you mention on one of your other uh, podcasts that you did is that, um, your, the, the company and, and one of the reasons why it's been so successful um, is because you've navigated successfully using this system um, to navigate uh, reimbursement from insurance going down and consumer spending on health care going up primarily due to high deductibles. Mm -hmm. um, is that, and, and part of that is uh, 
like you said, you're able to kind of uh, target high value patients versus low value patients. Can you kind of explain the process that uh, that what what happens and um, like how would you help a practice navigate uh, and talk to patients that have uh, a low rate of actually paying their bills and things like that? Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot to that question. So, so to back up, you know, when you think about that dollar that gets billed is going to be paid for by either a insurance B patient or a combination, most of the time it's combination. Right. And then the, and then the back, you know, the adjustment should be a contractual, hopefully it's not an avoidable write-off. Yes. Um, The problem is 20 years ago, five cents on the dollar came from the patient. So if you collected from me or didn't, it didn't really change your life. Now it's like 50 to 55%. And even growing, and especially the first half of the year, right? The first three or four months of the year when the deductibles have been reset. So what I tell our clients to do is that if you're still running your business, not like a business, you're going to have a real problem. What I mean by that is, you know, would you walk into a grocery store and get, you know, Whole Foods and you get all your stuff in the basket. And as you're walking out the door, haven't paid for it, you say, don't worry, put it on my tab. I'll pay you later. Right. And that's how healthcare continues to operate today. You know, surgical specialties continue to operate like that. Yeah. Not, you know, they may be getting better, but it's not where they need to be. You know, in the 1800s, that might have worked in those little Western towns. But in this day and age, that doesn't work. So what we tell them is, one, stop seeing patients who refuse to true up their balances. So we have algorithms that actually say, hey, Brady's coming in for a, a, a PT visit in uh, middle of March. But Brady already owes $350 from two prior dates of service. So we're going to engage with Brady mobily. We're going to send him a mobile text and an email with a link to pay and a note saying, hey, we expect you to have this paid or at least be on a payment plan prior to your next service, right? Or, you know, we have, and we have a whole self-pay service solution and technology that kind of drives this, this discussion. But that's really where I start. You know, I, I, a lot of people will sit there and say, well, I just have to be better at sending statements out or I have to be better at, at making phone calls. So let's talk about statements. They're expensive. 70 cents a pop for a paper statement, 25 cents for an e-statement. That's a little better. But why do you keep sending statements with no outcome? So we have analytics that look and say, how many statements have actually been sent with no positive financial outcome? So if you're sending four, five, six, seven statements, you're just wasting money. So what I tell them is I said, so instead of focusing on that, you know, oh, well, let me back up. The other thing that they say is, well, I've got Sally and she makes phone calls. I said, how's that working for you? We have an auto dialer that we've been using for years. The connect rate is about less than 10%, meaning that if I put out 100 calls, 10 people or less will actually answer. And of those 10, it's eight, it's six to 8% will actually make a payment. Yeah, I, I so think, think about that. Yeah, I think I mean, anecdotally, you could, you could right? probably, I could have probably told you that based on, you know, how many times I can actually connect with my wife via a phone call well, rather than a text. There right? you go. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, wait, honey. Yeah. <laughs> so that's exactly right. So, you know, we don't, and we're a society now where we don't. I mean, I read a, an article yesterday where it was like, stop texting, go back to phone calls. And I kind of chuckled. I'm like, but everybody that's, yep. they just, te- and I'm a horrible texter and I get complaints all the time. But, but my point is, is that, so what I do is instead of saying, Hey, let's try to focus on ODD what happens when you don't collect is let's look at how you can speed up the collection. So start with the people that keep coming in to see you. And some medical specialties are frequent flyers, right? When you're looking at maybe PT or OT, or you're looking at, um, you know, urology and things like that, where, you know, people are coming in, you know, your, your new patient rate in some of our medical specialties is less than 15%. So that means 85% of the people are coming back to see you. And a lot of those actually already owe you money. We have an algorithm that says how much money is already coming, has already been scheduled to come back in in the next three to six months. Millions and millions of dollars 
is out there that's already scheduled to come back and these people still have outstanding balances. So now you have to be transparent with the patients too, right? We've got to use patient estimators. We've got to collect deposits. We've got to make sure that they understand that there's not going to be a surprise bill because that's the worst, right? Is yeah. it, you know, uh, surprise billing is a big initiative now. So, so they're, you know, collect what's already owed and then there's estimating what's about to be owed and getting at least a good deposit. You know, my theory on estimators is I've seen them all. I've seen a ton out in the market. I don't think you're ever going to get to the decimal point. You don't need to. You know, I talked to organizations that are writing off a half, you know, million to a million dollars more a year in bad debt. And I said, if you just collected 25% of what you thought you were supposed to, would you be better in a better yeah, situation? 100%. Oh, yeah, it makes sense when you say it that way. So look, get an estimate in place, collect that deposit, and then make sure that when your patients are coming back in is that they're paying their prior balances. You know, that has to be right. You have to start running your business like a business and half that dollar or more is coming from the consumer now. So you don't have the luxury of relying on third party insurance. So when I when I had heard you kind of explain that on another podcast, the, the question that kind of popped into my head is, you know, I've talked to and I'm going to talk to some other um uh, you know, healthcare quote unquote experts, right? Um, you know, whether or not they're uh, you know, the people that are trying to make changes in Congress to the overall system, right? Um do, do you, are you just kind of in a position where you're playing the game as it's uh, currently set up right now in terms of helping those physician practices? Because I'll tell you what, like, even though, you know, some people may view as some healthcare providers are overcharging and things like that, there are a lot of private physician groups that are, you know, they're trying to make a living. They're trying to run a business just like anybody else's. And like you said, they've got to get paid for services uh, and they need to effectively do it. And it's crazy that uh, in healthcare, we don't pay up front for pretty much anything. But do you do you have any opinions on kind of the overall system and like how any of this would change if it were to go to uh, more of a less of a market-based system or would things stay the same in your opinion? So unfortunately, you know, like the single payer system concept, value-based care, all those things are, are, are yeah. interesting. The, the challenge is the, the profit margins of, of these groups can't support a lot of change in the reimbursement models. You see every okay. year, you know, if Medicare reduces uh, the reimbursement, you know, you have practices going out of business just because of that. So, so, you know, the, the, when you look at, uh, the government and their whole thing on, I'm going to change healthcare, right? I'm going to fix healthcare. If you can't get the costs dealt with, and what I mean by cost is the cost of delivering your service. So it's your yep. supply costs. It's, it's what these, these huge profit margins on these drug companies are making. If you, if you can't work with your labor costs, you know, and, and, and look at labor costs, which now, you know, you have things going out like, Hey, is it going to be $15 an hour minimum? Is that going to be the minimum now? And like, what's that going to do to my PL? So until you can get the cost pressures in control, it's going to be really difficult for a lot of these providers to stay in practice, which by the way, is why you're seeing a lot of private equity consolidation right now. COVID yeah. was kind of the spark right on top of the Tinder. Uh, and, and that was, uh, it was interesting to see is that we've had quite a few of our larger clients be bought out by private equity. Okay. And so these doctors are kind of going, you know, I got five, five years left, 10 years left. It's been a good run. I got a big you know, multiple on my, my uh, EBITDA for an exit here, I'm just going to just take it, Yeah, you know? Um, and I think that you're going to see more and more of that this year, you know, as long as the you know, interest rates stay, stay reasonable, but, and money's cheap, you know, for these, these private equity firms, but it's really hard to just go in and say, we're going to solve healthcare 
when you don't focus on getting the costs under control, costs that can be controlled. You know, when I see these profit margins from these, I'm not going to name them, but these big group purchasing organizations, profit margins from these insurers, you're like, where, who's, who's the one that's taking it the worst? It's the provider. Yeah. It's the, literally the provider. And by the way, the provider now has to collect half their dollar from the consumer who's now worried about their next paycheck, whether they're going to, uh, you know, they're going to get their $1,400 stimulus check, yeah. whether they're going to be able to keep their lights on, go to food, right? So, so there's all these things that are going on that, that are tough. It's a really tough situation right now that this industry is in. And, and some would say, well, hey, for the elective procedures, you just say, okay, well, if you can't pay, you can't do it. That hurts the elective procedure doctors. Because yes. it's like, okay, well, my shoulder's been hurting for two years. I guess I'll just hold off for another year or two, you know, versus getting the shoulder replacement, which is what I really need, but I can't afford the $2,000 deductible right now. Yep. So, you know, there's a lot of things that, that are, are wrong in this industry. And, and frankly, I don't see the government making a whole lot of headway in solving the cost problem. I hear a lot of people focused on availability of healthcare, you yep. know, Medicare for all, Obamacare, this or that, you know, but if you're going to deconstruct those things, you got to solve the cost. You know? yep. and, and if you don't solve the cost, then it doesn't matter what you bill and what you get reimbursed because your margin is going to be gone. Yeah. And, and I, I think there's also a good argument to say that, you know, independent physician groups are, are part of the solution to that rather than uh, the, the problem. Um, it's just that, again, they're having a hard time competing yeah. with some of those uh, groups that are consolidating or the big hospital systems. Yeah. Um, so is, is there, I guess, is there anything else, um, that we missed about Metavolve that, uh, really needs to be talked about? Well, I think, I think the one thing that, that always comes up with us is, is, you know, this concept of a PM and an EMR, you know, we don't have an EMR. We tried to build one years ago and we failed at it. You know, most really good practice management companies don't do well at building EMRs and most really good EMR companies are horrible at building practice management systems. So, you know, this, this facade of an all-in-one always cracks me up. You know, you're selling into these physicians and Dr. So-and-so says, well, I have to have an all-in-one. I'm like, you wrote off 5% of your revenue last year to avoid write-offs. How's an all-in-one going to solve that? Yeah. Well, it won't. Exactly. <laughs> like you've got to have the right PM in place to get you paid what you're supposed to be paid on time. And if you're not, you know why in seconds, right? And then you got to have the right EMR in place to make sure you're efficient in the OR and make sure you're efficient in the, in the, in the clinical room. And there's this amazing thing that's been around forever called interfacing. <laughs> you know, there's APIs, there's HL7s, right? So, you know, we spent 20 years doing bi-directional interfaces with all times of you know, the EMRs. But I think it's important for, for you know, your listeners or anybody else on the spectrum to say, look, you don't have to have an all-in-one. You know, you have to have the best system to get you paid and you have to have the best system to deliver clinical care, you know? And sometimes those aren't the same, you know? And that's okay, that's okay. But that's, you know, I'm hearing less of that argument nowadays um, than I did say two or three years ago, because we evaluated actually rebuilding an EMR and we finally met with our board and said, if I got to go spend time innovating, I want to build AI driven workflow and analytics on the PM and around the PM in the cloud, uh, instead of spending two years and a couple million dollars trying to build an EMR, which is frankly such a commoditized, commoditized market, there's no guarantee I'm going to get this deal done. If I'm competing against the epics of the world, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Is, is there any plan to, uh, kind of venture outside of, uh, the ortho slash neuro space surgery that you're in, um, branching out to other healthcare segments? 
Yeah, so we are actually, we're in most surgical specialties. We have a lot of clients in the urology, gastro, ENT, you know, obviously ortho is a big one of us, neuro, neurospine. Uh, but we also do behavioral health. Um, okay. We've got physical therapy. Um, we've got um, skilled nursing facilities. So, so, you know, a remedy cycle is a remedy cycle. That's what I tell folks. You That's know? true. Frankly, I sometimes like the less acute specialties because they're just easy to work with, you know, like high volume. <laughs> you know, and let's be honest, like in physical therapy, you know, or OT, I mean, the reimbursements are getting so low. It's like you really, and the volumes have to be so high to make, to keep up with the low reimbursement. You can't afford to be inefficient on your revenue cycle. Yeah. You, so, you, you know, you talked about an industry that Medicare, uh, any kind of legislation affects, uh, revenue for, for f- the physical therapy and occupational therapy is definitely one of them. Uh, they yeah. get hard every time they make any kind of cut to Medicare, um, at reimbursement rates, uh, so uh, working in the PT space, uh, any uh, overall advice that you would give to, to any practices? Well, I, I mean, again, I mean, if you, if you want to manage revenue cycle internally, make sure you have the tools to keep your people effective, not just productive. And that's a big thing that, that, that we use here. That term is, is that I, I, I not only want you productive, but I want you productive, but I want you effective at your job. So you keep my labor dependence down, you know, and, it, and, and if you choose to outsource rev cycle and a lot of our clients obviously have chosen to do that to us or anybody is make sure they have the tools in place to allow you to hold them accountable. And what I mean by that is you should have full transparency in a daily into how well that RCM company is doing on your behalf, because you're paying them good money to, to, to manage your rev cycle. And that's another thing, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about revenue cycle outsourcing, but revenue cycle outsourcing companies love to hide behind their data. You know, as in like, I don't really want to have a conversation with you until you're really upset. We don't do that anymore. And that was probably us a couple of years ago. We were probably like, oh, when do we know there's a problem when the client calls us? Now yeah. it's like, I'm an open book, man, because I'm like, if you have access to my ops, I'm going to keep my ops teams on point. You yeah. know? And if they're not, I'm going to at least be able to have constructive, non-emotional conversations with you about what we're doing about it. So I think that that, that transparency is, is got to be key, uh, whichever specialty you're in, but certainly with PTOT, because of the redu- declining reimbursements, you have a lot more to lose when you get it wrong. So, um, yeah. So, yeah. So I guess uh, let's transition a little bit into uh, the other business that you're currently, uh, well, that you created and are currently very involved with uh, and uh, uh, could you, um, could you kind of give me the, the rundown of my life link and, um, what that's about and what the inspiration was behind that company and, um, how that got created? Yeah, absolutely. You know, like I said, you know, at the start of the call, you know, I like to look at, uh, industries that are ineffective, you know, and, uh, I have a personal story with addiction. I, I suffered from, uh, alcoholism and I got hooked on prescription opiates, uh, after a surgery back before anyone told you that you could actually get addicted to those things. Um, so I ended up actually in uh, rehab and Betty Ford uh, uh, over three years ago now. And I remember as I was going through that experience thinking like, how do I, how do I live when I'm not in this secure confined environment? You know? So when I was discharging the lady discharging me, she said, here's a, here's a guy's name, Bob F. Why don't you give him a call? He's an alumni. And I said, oh, that's cool. He lives in San Diego. Is he sober? And she's like, well, we don't really know, but we hope so. I said, okay, well, what does he do for a living? Uh, we don't know. I said, well, what hobbies does he like? Like, is he a surfer? Can I go like mountain bike with the guy and you know, not just like have coffee? She goes, those would all be really good things for us to know. <laughs> so I developed a global sober tribe 
of warriors that allow uh, we can identify ourselves in a much deeper way than just I'm an addict. You know, I'm an addict, but I'm also a parent. I'm an entrepreneur. Uh, I'm a surfer. You know, I also have a history of hypertension. You know, <laughs> I have peripheral neuropathy. Right. So I start to identify myself and then I start to link with people that are similar storylines. And that's where we start to see healing begin. So it's like, you know, you can go on match.com. You can go on uh, cars.com to find the ideal car. Where's addict.com? Like where, how do I go find people I can relate to, you know? Um, And that's really been, it was really the starting point. And then it's the behavioral patterns that you track. So what do we do every day to stay healthy and in recovery? What do we do every day to serve others? You know, what are we doing today to be selfless? So, you know, me, for example, me sharing my story, I'm going to log in after this, I can log into the app and I can say, click on the share my story. And I can say, I had a great podcast with Brady, you know, uh, was able to talk a little bit about the, my life links over tribe. And hopefully if he has listeners out there that either have issues with either behavioral addiction or physical addiction or know somebody, they can download it and join the family, you know? And so, so it's, it's, it's giving back to the community too. Um, it's a, it's a, it was a side project, you know, I've obviously gainfully employed with Metavolve. It was really a passion project. I mm-hmm. haven't ra- raised any money on it. you know, I, I've, I've made the investments myself, but it's the right thing to do for this industry. Because when you look at relapse rate at high, as high as 95% in the first year, and even for say the 5% who may have abstained from maladaptive behaviors or physical addiction in a year, the quality of their lives are not where they need to be. They're not building extraordinary lives. They're just not picking up a drink or a drug or, or you know, a behavioral addiction uh, pattern again. I want to build extraordinary. I want people to not only say, hey, I'm in recovery over three years, but I love my life. And people ask me, they say, well, Matt, how was your life before? How is it now? And I said, the, the way I describe now is, is my camera roll on my phone. Because the experiences that I can show through pictures with my wife, with my kids, with my friends, colleagues, you know, over the last three years, those, those don't exist if I didn't get sober. None of that exists if I didn't get sober. And then I don't know what pictures would have fallen in. So, yeah. so li- life really takes a new meaning. You know, the other thing too is, look, you know, I've been successful. I've built companies, sold companies. Um, most people, when I, I got sober, didn't even know I had a problem. And that's also a problem in this industry is, is that just because you're not, you know, maybe, you know, in jail or living on the street or homeless and lost everything doesn't mean that people aren't suffering. There are people right now, especially in the pandemic, who were teetering on, say, alcoholism, and now they're full-blown alcoholics. How did that just happen? How, how did I go from, I think I have a problem, to, oh my God, I, my life is starting to unravel. So, so we have to be careful that, that you know, people realize, and again, if I'm a physician, I want you to be able to connect with other physicians. You know, mm-hmm. If you're an attorney, I want you to be able to connect with other attorneys, right? If you're trying to get sober and I can connect with an attorney who's figured out a way to do it and build an extraordinary life and put those two together, it's amazing outcome. PTSD war. You know, if I've got a a person who's been to war, I can't relate to that person. I've never been to war. I've never been shot at. I've never killed anybody. But if I find somebody out there in the tribe, this over tribe of my life link that has, and they can connect, you start to see growth. So, you know, I was amazed when I went public. So about two, two years ago, when I really started launching this and I've done a ton of podcasts and I'm very, very, very uh, open on social media. I've, I've done a lot of news, uh, news, especially here locally, San Diego. So I, I'm kind of like, here you guys go. I had people from my network come to me and say, I had no idea. And then I had people come and saying, hey, I have a problem too. What can I do about it? You know, so I have a lot of people that are coming to me and saying, hey, thanks for sharing your story. I'm sure that wasn't easy, but you've now helped me. 
you know, or I have a friend that needs help. And so I'm just going to keep running with it. I mean, people are like, are you going to commercialize it? And I'm like, no idea. They're like, are you going <laughs> to make it for profit? I'm like, no idea. All I know is every day I got people signing up and their, their focus is to get healthy and get into recovery and start to build something extraordinary that they're proud of. And that's good enough for me right now. So I have a, what's hopefully maybe an interesting question, but uh, one of the other podcasts um, you were talking about uh, when uh, you were struggling with your addiction and one of your bosses told you, I would rather have you, you know, at kind of like half of what you could be because, you know, you had your drinking problem than the next guy because you were so good at what you did. Um, and then at the end of kind of, uh, the conversation you were having, you were saying like how much clearer everything became. And then, um, you know, what, what personality trait or what traits do you think that, uh, you had, um, and what changed from when you were struggling with your addiction that made you, makes you so good at what you do in terms of having this kind of like entrepreneurial spirit, um, to, create these companies to improve these companies through your advisory roles. Um, and then, you know, create this space for people that are struggling with addiction and that can, can connect. Like what, what do you think it is about yourself that makes you so uh, good at what you do? Yeah. So I, I love that you brought that first point up is that I did, you know, this is, again, this is the, the, the baffling part of addiction is if you're still high functioning enough, people don't know. And, and that was my, my challenge. They're like, well, he can't have that bad of a problem. He's got a great wife. He's got beautiful kids. He's got the nice house in San Diego. He's got the right job. So, but that's the irony because it's like inside I was being, I was destroying myself, not just physically, but emotionally. Um, you know, I think it's funny. The addict brain is an amazing brain. You know, the, 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 the thing about the addict brain is that when we get hooked on uh, taking substances, to say, deal with anxiety. You know, I spent my whole life playing for anxiety. Even as a little boy, my mom reminds me of how anxious I was as a kid. So, so when we get fixated on trying to solve for an emotional uh, addiction, like anxiety or fear, our addict brain says, Hey, if I take this, it's going to actually make me feel better. That's okay. So what do we do? We overtake it. We overtake it. But that same brain, when you focus on recovery, can be laser focused on recovery and, and laser focused on, 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 on doing the things that you need to do to stay healthy, stay sober and help others. And so the most successful folks in recovery are the ones that have applied that same brain that got them into trouble to, to recovery. And I think that's really it. You know, my whole life I've, I'm an identical twin. Um, so I've had to fight for attention my whole life, you know, whether it was in sports or school or girls, you know, it was a constantly competitive world. Um, so I am naturally very competitive. You know, I always tell people I, I, I do not like to lose, but I actually don't like, you know, winning has taken a much different concept to me in recovery now than, than it did before, because it's not driven by ego. It's driven by what am I actually doing, right, to help other people, you know, not just help myself, which is what I did my addiction aside. So, you know, I think that uh, you know, when you expand the, the definition of addiction beyond physical to behavioral and now emotional, everybody qualifies to some extent, you know, you know, if we allow our outside world to make ourselves feel bad, you know, I'm not good enough, you know, I'm looking at social media and they, they seem to have a better life or somebody called me a name, 
you know, or said I was fat or whatever it is, if I allow that to dip, to impact my emotional well-being, that's on me. That's not on them. They, they, they did something. That's okay. You did it. I'm the one that internalized it. So learning how to flip the key there and really focus on emotional recovery and emotional sobriety, which is something that we're doing a lot at my life like now, has also helped tremendously for me because that was the kid. I mean, I was the kid who played for anxiety. And before I knew what alcohol was, you know, I was the guy that was like, I need to be an All-American in college. I need to do sports better than you. I need to be, get a better job. I need to, you know, I, I kept, I need to work out 10 times a day. Like I had to keep doing things to try to offset this crazy stuff going on in my head around being anxious. When in reality, I needed to understand what was making me anxious and, and let it pass, you know? Uh, and that's not, I'm not a perfect at that. I still, I work on that every day, you know, and that's, that's something I was on a podcast earlier this week. And, and she asked me, well, are you getting there? I said, well, I'm, I might be getting there, but I got a long way to go. <laughs> you know? Still on the journey. So, still on the journey. Well, I mean, it's been uh, inspirational talking to you, Matt, and uh, I appreciate you coming on. And um, I, if, the, if there's anything else you want to plug or, or um, if you could let us know, uh, the best way to stay in touch with you, uh, in my life link and MetaVolve, uh, let us know. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, LinkedIn's a good way, you know, you can search for my name and, and connect with me on that, you know, uh, metavolve.com is our URL there. We can, I think I have Ashley supply that for you yeah. and resources mm -hmm. is a good place. And my life link, you know, we're on the app store. So if you or someone, you know, uh, I guess I'm talking to your listeners right now, have yep. a concern or an issue with addiction, uh, just search Google Play or, or the Apple Store for My Life Link and come join us and check it out. You know, it's it's a fun, uh, fun experience and it's just full of inspiration. So awesome. It's been, been really good to, to see people improve their lives and put their lives back together and then start to achieve things that they never thought were possible. All by getting sober. Who would have thought it? That's right. So. All right, Matt. Thank you so much for your time and uh, have a wonderful, yeah. wonderful rest of your day. YouTube break. Take care. This podcast is brought to you by Freedom Physical Therapy Services, providing exceptional one-to-one -one, hands-on care to the greater Milwaukee area for over 25 years. Our physical and occupational therapists prepare custom plans for your condition to relieve pain and improve performance. Allow us to help you enjoy more freedom at freedompt.com.